Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before introducing today's guest, I wanted to mention that this Wednesday, November 28th, 2012, Nassim Taleb will be launching his new book, Anti-Fragile, with a live event at the Powerhouse Arena in Brooklyn, New York. I'll be joining him there for a conversation about the book. You may remember we did an Econ Talk episode on Anti-Fragile when it was in manuscript. I'd love to see you at the event this Wednesday. Tickets are $15 and go toward the purchase of the book, and you can find out more at powerhousearena.com. Now for today's episode. Today is November 19th, 2012, and my guest is Marsha Angel, Senior Lecturer in Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School and former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. She is the author of The Truth About the Drug Companies, How They Deceive Us, and What to Do About It. Marsha, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, you've written about uh, the role of pharmaceutical companies in, in a lot of different areas. I want to start by referring to an article you wrote for the Boston Review a couple years ago on how the pharmaceutical companies have corrupted uh, academic research and the clinical trial process. Uh, explain what your concern was there. Well, most clinical trials of drugs are now sponsored by the companies that make the drugs. Uh, and uh, these companies have gained great control over the way the clinical trials are designed, uh, how the data are analyzed, where and whether the data will be published, uh, and they introduce bias into the research results throughout this process. And yet, the researchers who do the studies, the, the drug companies don't have their own patients, so they have to go elsewhere to find patients, and they often go to medical schools and teaching hospitals uh, and use faculty members there to do the trials. These researchers have become sort of hired hands. They follow the recipe that's handed to them by the company, and they report the trials as the company tells them to. Uh, This is corrupting uh, research and making the public and doctors uh, think that prescription drugs are much better and safer than they really are. Now, Now, part of this process, of course, comes from the regulatory structure that's set up. One of the strangest parts about that structure is the fact that the clinical trials are done by the the companies no matter what, uh, as it's currently established, right? The the U.S. government, the FDA, doesn't have its own labs and its own tests. So the, the trial process is in the hands of the pharmaceutical companies, which is a little weird. But the weirder part is the part you're emphasizing now, which is that in the process of executing those trials, they are paying and uh, rewarding academic and medical researchers, which then affects, I think, your concern and mine as well, is that that affects their research elsewhere, so talk about how, when you were uh, editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, why that was such a big concern to you. 
Well, I began to see. I, I was at the New England Journal of Medicine as an editor, and I became editor-in-chief my last year there. Uh, I was there from 1979 uh, to uh, 2000 when I stepped down from that position. And in those 21 years, I saw an enormous change in the relationship of uh, academic medicine and clinical research to the drug companies. Uh, and I saw more and more bias introduced into the research. Um, it's not so much that the drug companies were paying for the research. They had always done that. It was just the terms and conditions of the research itself. Uh, it used to be up until the middle of the 80s uh, that drug companies would simply give a grant to uh, a medical school or teaching hospital for faculty members uh, to, to uh, do research on the company's product. But the company, there were no strings attached. They simply gave the money and stood back and hoped that the research made their drug look good. Uh, they did not presume to tell the researchers how to design their study, how, how to analyze it or to tell them whether they would be permitted to publish the work. Uh, all of that changed as drug companies became richer and richer and uh, began to shower their wealth on academic medicine. Uh, it was just too good to turn down for the academic medical centers. Uh, so the companies began to assert the right to design the studies. They actually said that they would keep the data, and for multi-centered trials, sometimes they don't even allow researchers to see their own data. That is, all of their own data. Uh, they keep it secret. Uh, they would analyze the study, and of course, it would always turn out that their drug looked good. Um, and then they would tell the researcher whether they could publish the work or not. And uh, w one of the worst forms of bias is that the uh, drug companies will not permit researchers to publish negative results. If the drug doesn't look good, it's not published. It's buried. Now, the, the really shocking thing about that is that all of the clinical trials that are done in order to get approval for a new drug to come on the market must, by law, be submitted to the FDA. So the FDA receives all of the data from all of the clinical trials, and a company will do many, many trials in order to get its drug on the market. And then the FDA will look through all of these trials, and if two are positive, that is, they show the drug is reasonably safe and effective, then they'll usually approve that drug, uh, and the drug goes on the market. But there may be, for these two studies, there may an, be an additional 10 studies or 15 studies that are negative. Uh, the drug doesn't look good or, or doesn't look as safe as you would hope. Uh, but they will not release the negative trials. The FDA will not release the negative trials because they say it's proprietary. They only release the trials that the company uh, agrees to release. So in lots of cases, uh, the negative results are hidden, the positive results are published, and the negative results are hidden within the agency that is supposed to be ensuring the safety and effectiveness of drugs. 
so that's pretty shocking. Now, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I just want to mention, and maybe we'll come back to this later, that most economists who have written on the FDA are critical about their bias in the other direction. That oh, the well. FDA is well, <laughs> that the FDA is too cautious, that yeah. it's too expensive to approve new, new drugs, and that new drug approvals and innovation have slowed because of the costs and time it takes, particularly the time cost yeah. of getting a new br- drug approved. How do you reconcile those two views? Is one of them right? Are they well, both one right? Self-serving. One of them is self-serving. Um, the, um, the and 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 it's it's singing the song of the drug companies. But the facts are quite different. First of all, the FDA is faster than any of the other regulatory agencies in other countries. It is the fastest now, uh, and it's the fastest because it's paid to be the fastest. That is, uh, drug companies now, uh, for each drug, new drug that's reviewed to, to get approval, uh, must pay a user fee, what's called a user fee, to the FDA. And that user fee can only go, or the lion's share of it, can only go to speeding up the approval of drugs. Those user fees now account for over half of the budget of the part of the FDA that approves new drugs. So the FDA now has a financial incentive to approve as many drugs as it can as quickly as possible because these user fees are per drug review. So the faster you turn them out, the better it is, and it's easier to approve a drug than to disapprove the drug. Uh, And also one other factor in this is that the FDA uses some standing expert advisory committees uh, to advise them about approval, and they consist of distinguished experts from around the country. Uh, these people uh, are paid often by drug companies. That is, they're on the payroll in one way or another. They're consultants or they're on speaker's Bureaus. Uh, so there's extraordinary conflict of interest there as well. Uh, the, the question of innovation, you said that uh, some people feel, economists feel, that uh, this slows up innovation. The drug companies do almost no innovation nowadays. Um, since the Bayh-Dole Act was was enacted in 1980, uh, they don't have to do any innovation. Uh, the Bayh-Dole Act says that publicly funded laboratories in universities, medical schools, and at the NIH itself, uh, these are almost all NIH funded, that uh, the researchers who discover something uh, can, can patent that, the institution uh, can patent it, the university, the, the teaching hospital, and then license it exclusively to one of the big drug companies in return for royalties. So you can see what happens there, the results of that. First of all, it, it puts the uh, medical schools and teaching hospitals in the role of junior partner of of big pharma, of the big drug companies. Um, and, and so they can get royalties, and some of them get a lot of royalties. And the second effect is that 
the drug companies no longer have to do their own basic research. I mean, that's the creative part. That's the innovative part. They can license in or, or buy from startup companies, companies that are started up by the researchers uh, in, in the universities. They can buy uh, from them or license in from them the early discoveries. And then all they have to do is the late development. Uh, and that's the clinical trials. Now, that is an expensive part of the process, but it is not an innovative process. No, that, that's for sure. I mean, that's required by law, but let's just get a couple of facts on the table, and I know you're yeah. going to mm-hmm. – I know these are facts are sometimes elusive um, or ambiguous. Um, research and development budget of the pharmaceutical industry is – in 2009 – is, was about $70 billion. That's, that's a very large sum of money. Are you suggesting that they don't do anything, that that's mostly or all marketing, or that they're not trying to discover new applications of the basic research? It seems to me basic research is an important part, but putting that research into a form that can make us healthier seems to be a non-trivial thing. Are they, you think they're, what are they doing with that money? Tell you what they're doing with that money. If you look, if you look at the uh, budgets of the major drug companies, just go to their annual reports, their SEC filings. You see that research and development is really the smallest part of their budget. Uh, if, if you look at the big companies, you you can divide their budget into four big categories. Uh, One is research and development. The other is marketing and administration. The other is profits. And uh, the other is just the cost of making the pills and putting them in the bottles and distributing them. Uh, The smallest of those is R&D. The smallest is research and development. Uh, Profits usually are about the same. Uh, Marketing and administration is more than twice as much. So, right, but they, you're making a strong claim that they don't do any innovation; that they mainly free ride on the yes, and what the they do, do with their research and development, they're very secretive about these things. But what they do do uh, for sure is sponsor the clinical trials of drugs. Uh, the innovative ones of which have been discovered in publicly funded labs and then uh, taken in by the either through licensing or through purchasing a a small company, uh, taken in by the big companies, uh, and then uh, the late-stage development, which is the clinical trials, which is the most expensive part of the process, but it's not innovative. I mean, there's no no secret how to do a clinical trial. The other thing they do is to get top-selling drugs that usually were discovered in publicly funded labs many years ago, uh, like Nevacor, which was the first of the statins uh, to lower cholesterol and came on the market in 1987, or Prozac, which was the first of the SSRI antidepressants that came on the market the same year. What they do is get these top-selling drugs, twiddle a molecule enough uh, to get a new patent and new exclusive marketing rights and then market that. Uh, and you can now see that uh, there are 
oh, many uh, statins to lower cholesterol. Uh, probably the most successful was Lipitor, but right. now we're going on to Crestor and a bunch of others. But it was just, these were, are called Me Too drugs. It's a shower of drugs all in the same class with no real difference that anyone can put their finger on. So, um, so and, why does, and, and that's what they do. They turn out one of these after the other. So why does anyone pay for these, pay for the premium? Now, just to make it clear to our listeners, the, the original drug has a patent life uh, of a certain length. It's often, mm-hmm. it includes the cr- clinical trial period. So the time that the drug is, is patented and you can charge what is effectively something close to what you might call a monopoly price is, is limited in years. And when that runs out, of course, that the profitability plunges. And I understand the incentive of pharmaceutical companies to try to maintain that through a tweak in, in what you're suggesting is mainly name only, uh, in terms of its effectiveness. Why would anybody pay a premium for that new drug when they had the old one that's so cheap? Because of the marketing. Uh, I, I told you they, they spend twice as much on marketing as they do on research. Uh, and particularly if you watch television uh, in the evenings, the news shows, uh, it's marketing one drug after the other. And it not only markets the drugs, it markets the medical conditions that they're used to treat. It convinces people who, who watch shows that mainly older people watch it convinces them that there is a brand new drug, uh, a miracle drug for every ailment and discontent they can come up with. Uh, and so if they're shy, well, suddenly they have social anxiety disorder and they need Paxil. Uh, if they ate too many Big Macs and they have indigestion, they need Nexium. Uh, and so the the... Advertising of the medical condition is at least as big a factor in this as as the marketing of the particular drug. And in fact, research has shown that when you have a lot of drugs in in one class, and most of these are designed to treat um, lifestyle diseases uh, or conditions, that if if you push one of those drugs, if you pushed, say, Zoloft, uh, it would increase the sales of the other SSRI antidepressants in the same class because the market was so expandable uh, that, that it, the market just grew bigger and they all benefited. Well, I, I don't, I'm fortunate I don't have any cholesterol problems and, and I don't take any antidepressants, but let's talk about someone who does, somebody mm-hmm. who's got, let's say, both of these un- unfortunate situations. They're, they've got high cholesterol and they've got... Uh, They've got uh, issues with depression, and they're mm-hmm. going along taking Lipitor and whatever was pre-Zoloft for, for this. That, And now they get this new drug that they create, uh, rest, was it, what was it called, Crestor, uh, mm-hmm. and, and a new antidepressant drug. And mm-hmm. the, the improvement's very small, maybe none, uh, although sometimes I suspect there's probably some improvement, maybe in fewer side How effects. How would you know? How would well, you know? That's the problem. Well, I wouldn't know, but, but somebody who's... No you, one would know. But you'd think... I mean, the, You'd think that the person who was paying for it would object to paying an enormous premium when there's a cheap alternative that was maybe almost as good. Well, you see, they they believe there's an improvement. When the drug companies sponsor trials on their new drugs, and as I told you, they will design the study. And the studies are usually designed in such a way that the new drug is compared with a placebo, that is, 
with a sugar pill. It's not compared with whatever is already being used to treat that condition. It's not being compared with an older drug. Uh, and so when the drug is, uh, is approved by the FDA, all we know is that this drug is probably better than a sugar pill. We don't know whether it's better than the drug that's already being used. It may be better. It may be worse. It's more likely the same um, at equivalent doses. That's another trick they play. They, they will, when they do compare a new drug with an old drug, they often compare it with the old drug at too low a dose so that the new drug looks more powerful. Uh, but anyway, what happens is that all of these new Me Too drugs in one class spill onto the market. There is no scientific way to know whether any is better than any of the others at equivalent doses, but they are marketed as though they were better. And so people and physicians who get their information from some of the same places, uh, the public and physicians come to genuinely believe that Crestor must be better than Lipitor, uh, that, that the new drug must be better. Uh, and, you know, one way, one example of how this worked was in a, a drug called Prilosec to treat, um, to, to treat indigestion, essentially, to treat too much acid in your stomach. And Prilosec was the top-selling drug uh, in the United States for a while. Everybody was buying Prilosec, expensive prescription drug. It was getting to the point where ex exclusive marketing rights were going to end. And so what was the company going to do? Well, what they did was to get a form of Prilosec, essentially a form of Prilosec, uh, but the molecule was just different enough, uh, name it Nexium, put Prilosec on the market as an over-the-counter drug, and then start to push the new purple pill, uh, Nexium. And suddenly everybody who had been on Prilosec was now... now getting prescription Nexium, high-cost prescription Nexium, and then they could buy Prilosec, the same drug, essentially, over-the-counter, but they didn't do that because Nexium was promoted as though it were different, which it wasn't. So I'm, I'm only making the point that if, if that were the, actually the case that... If I, case. No, no, but if it were actually the case that I had to choose between uh, Prilosec at, a, at an enormous discount to Nexium with my own dollars... Yes. I'd probably buy Prilosec over the counter, but when the comparison is Prilosec out of my own pocket versus Nexium paid for by somebody else, I, mean, I may as well go with the one that's better. So it seems to me. Part, but neither is better. Neither well, let's, is better. Well, let's say, well, but one is free to me or close and one is not. Yes. So I think that's true. So I think that's true. My only claim is that part of this thing that bothers you, which bothers me too, is although it's certainly the profit motive of the pharmaceutical companies is part of the problem. It seems to me that the other part of the problem is the fact that we pay for much of our medical care with other people's dollars, mm -hmm. and that allows the corruption of the process. So, for example, as you point out, if doctors are getting lots of goodies, conference trips and swag and other things mm -hmm. from, from the industry, they're, they're going to be happy to, to, to prescribe those new drugs uh, and convince themselves perhaps yes. in, yes. inappropriately that they're actually better when they really aren't. Yes. 
Uh, that's true. Uh, and, and that is a problem in our health care system. Uh, we, as you must know, we have an irrational health care yeah. system, and you've just pointed to one, one irrationality of it. Another thing is that uh, the, the manufacturer of Nexium essentially bribed hospitals uh, by uh, stocking them uh, with Nexium that was almost free. So that when patients were in the hospital, uh, they would be given Nexium because it was cheap for the hospital. But then when they were discharged, they were discharged with a prescription for Nexium. And then they were on their own uh, to, to get it. Either their insurance company would pay for it, as, as you say, often happened, uh, or else they would pay for it out of pocket. But you can see how the company was able to seed the hospitals uh, with essentially free Nexium so that everybody would be discharged on that drug. Yeah. So just to clean up a couple loose ends before mm-hmm. we move on, and I want to I continue this discussion in a different area, but I want to just ask you a couple more things. You said that approval, FDA approval, has, is now the fastest. Mm-hmm. I used to read, and maybe these were isolated cases, that there would be drugs available in Europe long before they were available here because their approval was faster. Is that just mm-hmm. not true anymore with those it's isolated not true cases? Yes, that used to be true, but it's no longer true. And that's be- it's, it's you, faster here. And you think it's because of those fees? That have, that oh, it, it was explicit. It's not. It's not just my my uh, opinion on this. Uh, the the deal with the this is called PDUFA, uh, the Prescription Drug User Act, which was first passed in 1992, and has to and, and includes these user fees, and has to be renewed every five years. And the act had as a part of it the speed with which the FDA would reach a decision about new drugs. And if, if it was considered um, uh, an important new drug, then uh, they had six months to review it. This is not very much. Uh, and if it was a, an ordinary drug, a, a Me Too drug, uh, then I think they had up to a year. But very, very fast. And that was explicit. And what, what had it been before in terms of the length? Well, it varied. It varied a lot. Uh, it was never, uh, in, in my judgment, uh, outrageously long, but it was longer uh, than a lot of European uh, countries and, and Canada. That's no longer the case. So I want to also go back to the point about um, the corruption of, of research centers, medical centers, and academics. You talked uh, very uh, poignantly about, it's not, I don't know if it's poignant, it's the right word, tragically, about a uh, lead author in a New England Journal of Medicine piece who was receiving, I think it was $500,000 a year in consulting fees from the mm-hmm. pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. And that is disturbing. Uh, I think that corrupts regardless of, I'm sure the doctor would explain, oh, I'm a scientist, I'm a, I'm a doctor, I would never let this affect me, but yes. as an economist. <laughs> that's I, what they say. That's what they'd say. And I, I find that, as they, the word I would use is implausible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's imaginable, but it's implausible. So the question is, what, what role, how much do we want to blame universities and, and faculty? And we have this problem in economics as well. It's a little bit subtler because uh, there aren't as many uh, direct payments that people can receive from, from industry, at least. They do get lots of, they, they have the opportunity in economics to have power 
depending on some of the things they say. They, they can increase their chances of being involved with the Federal Reserve, for example, which is very prestigious and leads to lots of other things. So I think this is a problem in lots of areas. But what role do we, why is it that universities allowed themselves to be essentially corrupted in this way? And I, and I do think it is corrupting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good money. Yeah. Uh, you say that uh, the, the drug companies can't directly give money, but they do yeah, directly no, no, no. give I money. Meant, I meant for economists. They're, they're, they're not an equivalent. They can in, in medicine. It's much harder in economics. Uh, oh, yeah, but here they just hand it out by the, by the bushelfuls. Um, there was one study that showed uh, 94% of physicians in the United States uh, get some money in some way from drug companies. Uh, they well, that get could include meals, a free pen. <laughs> I well, they, they get a use, free pen and they, they get a free the trip to Hawaii, yeah. too. The, the, the pen's uh, not as good it, as the trip, yeah. It, it varies, uh, the size of the gift, but, uh, you know, gifts do generate a certain sense of reciprocity. Yeah. And, uh, no and and the money just keeps flowing. Um, uh, many doctors wouldn't have to pay for any meal at all if they didn't want to. Well, I, feel sorry for, I feel sorry for any of the six percent that, that didn't get anything. They're listening right now. You guys uh, uh, get on the get on the gravy <laughs> get train. There. Get out there. You get you got opportunities. Well, uh, bless them. Or yeah, uh, maybe they have a clean conscience. Maybe they sleep better at night. Um, well, I don't know. I, it, I think it, that you know. I think that. The medical profession has come to believe uh, a a myth that's propagated by the industry. And the myth is this, that that this industry somehow can both be an investor-owned business uh, whose whose, uh, fiduciary responsibility is to uh, enhance the value of the of the shareholder stock to, uh, to to make as big a profit as they possibly can, that they can simultaneously be that, be in the business of selling drugs, and at the same time be unbiased, neutral, uh, uh, research and education institutions. Uh, and doctors have swallowed that in this part of their professional lives, even though they know better than to swallow such a fiction in any other part of their life. Yeah, I mean, no, they sure. wouldn't go to a Honda dealer and say, what's the best car to buy? Uh, and yet they will ask a drug company salesperson, what is the best drug to buy? Uh, and and so they they tell themselves this because it's profitable to tell themselves this, and and uh, it's now even though these changes are, are relatively recent, I'm old enough to remember before all of this was true, before 1980, uh, I'm old enough to remember when they actually had to do their own innovative research. Uh, this is, has so permeated the medical profession that now young doctors believe it's just a necessary part of, of medicine. And it's so, not. Well, let me ask you an overall question. I want to get later, we'll get to some alternative ways we might think about having uh, research lead to pharmaceuticals that improve our lives. But you're definitely, uh, you're correct that that in the post-1980 period, the profitability, I assume it's gone up. I know it's very high. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So let's say if we think of 80 as sort of a, a turning point or, or the, uh, the um, Buy-Dole Act as a turning point, uh, which was, mm-hmm. what year was that? 
Uh, that was 1980, and, and then the, there were other related uh, pieces of legislation, but also uh, the criteria for, for getting a patent were relaxed considerably. At, at the same time, uh, the, the courts uh, changed the definition of, of a requirement for a patent. It used to be that in order to get a patent on the drug, it had to be uh, of practical use, it had to be novel, it had to be non-obvious. It couldn't just be the next step in, in a process, but so, it had to be a, a leap, and it had to be practical, which before, I think the, the courts visited this in 1981, but before that, uh, practical meant that it had to have some use at the bedside. That was changed to mean that it had to have some use in further research. So this is this has definitely led to greater profits. It's led to this opportunity for drug companies to to co-opt academic research in the ways you've described. And, and mm-hmm. I, I I'm I don't like any of that either. So we're on the same page there. We, we're going to disagree about how to I think about how to make it better, but we, we agree that it's a bad thing. But mm-hmm. if we step back and we ask a, an unanswerable question, but we could speculate, if we step back and say, okay, these changes have certainly led to some unattractive. Uh, Effects on on academic research on the medical profession. Uh, they've certainly led to greater profits for the drug companies and this back scratching relationship between these these groups. But if you were a person with a heart condition uh, or other medical problems in 1970 versus say today, mm-hmm. do you are you going to argue that the drugs available to me today are only a little bit better than they were then, or are they dramatically better? Now, I'm arguing the with you about where they came from. Okay. Um, and, uh, for example, the treatment of AIDS now is just remarkable compared with what it was when AIDS first burst on the scene in, in the early 80s. This was all NIH research. All NIH research. Uh, not the companies that make and sell the drugs, but the NIH. That's what I'm arguing with you about. But I'd also make the case that there have been some real downsides of this in terms of health. It's not just the, the economic um, uh, skewing uh, or, or the bias for its own sake. If you look at Vioxx, for example, that, that probably caused oh, on the order tens of thousands uh, of, of deaths. Uh, that that were completely unnecessary. Uh, tens of thousands of, of heart attacks and strokes. And um, and here's another example of the power of the drug companies. When it became clear uh, to everyone, uh, now it had been clear to Merck even before the drug was on the market, but when it became clear to everyone in 2004 and Merck, pulled Vioxx off the market. Um, the, a few months later, uh, the FDA, FDA got two of its standing committees and combined them. One was the Data Monitoring Committee and the other was uh, Arthritis Committee, I guess. Uh, got the two of them together and had public hearings over three days. Uh, should Vioxx be kept off the market? Should Celebrex, which is 
essentially a weaker Vioxx. Right. Um, should that uh, come off the market? Should Bextra come off the market? Should the two Me Too drugs that were in the pipeline not be allowed out and, and so forth? And uh, the, the drug companies, uh, Merck and Pfizer, um, brought in a lot of uh, people to stand up at these hearings and say that without their Vioxx or without their Celebrex, you know, their life would be miserable. The people who had had heart attacks, of course, were not brought in to testify. And after three days, the committees voted that all of these could be in the market. All of these could be in the market. Uh, There were 32 members of this combined uh, committee. Uh, A few days later, the New York Times reported that of these 32 experts, 10 of them had financial ties to Merck or Pfizer the makers of of the COX-2 inhibitors, which is what these drugs are called, Uh, the 10 of the 32 had financial conflicts of interest. And if those votes had been discounted, all of those drugs would be taken off the market, uh, except for Celebrex, which would be allowed to stay on with a black box warning. Yeah, my uh, my preference would have been to keep them all on market anyway and let people act like adults, tell them the risks and let them choose. And I, there were many people who stockpiled those drugs because they were afraid they would lose their supply. And if our yeah. only standard is perfectly safe drugs, we're not going to have very many drugs. So I do think there's a trade-off there, but there, but your point about the, the corrupting influence is also true. That That's totally wrong. <laughs> it is totally wrong, yeah. and, and I would disagree with you. I mean, imagine saying, uh, you know, if you needed a had aortic stenosis and you needed a new valve, that uh, caveat emptor, you'll choose your own valve. I mean, that would be silly. Um, why is that's that? That's why you have an FDA. Why is that? Because you have no way of knowing. Well, that's true of everything in my life, and we what we have is we're all imperfectly informed. We all well, find you know, lots you of know, ways. You know whether you like um, this, this uh, shirt better than that shirt, and yeah. it doesn't matter too much if, if your opinion is wrong. Uh, but here it does matter. I think I'd be a little more careful if I, there weren't an FDA. I think I'd try to find out a little more than just sort of hoping that I'd trust the doctor, who's often wrong anyway. You know, that yeah. happens. So. Yeah. Uh, so before we move on to alternatives, and I, I want to talk about the piece you wrote in the New York Review of Books, which mm-hmm. uh, ties into a, an episode we did here at EconTalk with Gary Greenberg uh, about the definition of mental illness and the role of pharmaceuticals in dealing with mental illness versus talk therapy. Talk about mm-hmm. what you argued in that article and how it ties into what we've been talking about so far. Well, it ties in directly uh, in, in the sense that of, of all medical conditions, uh, mental health conditions are the most subject to being broadened uh, to, um, because the boundary between, between uh, wellness and, and uh, mental condition is very blurry. Yeah. Uh, and, and so if you can change those boundaries, you get a lot more customers. Uh, and let me give you um, an example from uh, another area that you mentioned earlier. You mentioned high cholesterol. One of the things that the drug companies have done through the experts who are on their payroll is to change the standard as to what constitutes high cholesterol. Uh, for a while, it was anything over 280, then it was anything over 240, then it was over anything, uh, it was anything over 200. And hmm. each time you drop the, uh, 
the threshold, you have increased the market by millions of, of Americans. Uh, and the same is true with high blood pressure. Each time you drop the standards, it used to be 140 over 90 was considered the cutoff for, for hypertension. And then they decided there was something called prehypertension, which is 120 over 80. Uh, each time you change the definitions, uh, you increase the, the, the market. You see this in mental illness. Each time you change the definition, each time you say uh, there's such a thing as pre-schizophrenia and that should be treated, you have increased the market. And that's what I was writing about, the, um, the incentives of the drug companies and the psychiatrists uh, to increase the market and to use exclusively uh, drug treatment. And there is a lot of evidence that many of these treatments, uh, while they have side effects, are not very effective in treating the conditions they're, they're meant to treat. That's particularly true of the antidepressants, uh, that they are essentially placebos since the FDA has all the negative studies and they're never published. The, the literature is very biased and it gives people the impression that these drugs work. Uh, it gives them a, an unrealistic impression that they work. Um, and so what you have is a combination of the um, of the conditions themselves multiplying of more and more conditions being added to the uh, DSM, which is the American Psychiatric Association's so-called Bible that yeah. that has all of the diagnostic standards for all of the, meta, the mental health conditions. The DSM, each edition, we're now about to have the DSM-5, has more and more and more disorders in it, which means that... and and. Many of these people who write the DSM uh, have financial ties to the companies that make the, the psychiatric drugs. Uh, so that the more conditions you have, uh, the better it is for, for the drug companies to make the drugs. Now, what kind of reaction did that article uh, generate? I know you got a lot of pushback from psychiatrists. Yeah. and Well, the American Psychiatric Association didn't like it, and the psychiatrists didn't like it. One of the things I pointed out was uh, psychiatry used to be talk therapy, uh, and, and uh, a psychiatrist would have one patient every 50 minutes. Uh, and, and now they refer to themselves, psychiatrists with the same training, refer to themselves as... Um, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, psychopharmacologists, I think yeah. is what they call them. They should call themselves pharmacists. That sounds and, like what they're really doing. And uh, what they do now is they use the DSM and they ask a series of questions in a short time. Uh, do you have any of these five of these nine uh, criteria for major depression? Oh, okay, you answered yes to five of the nine. Therefore, I will give you this drug. Goodbye. Uh, if you want to talk to somebody, well, you can go and see a, a lesser person, uh, a social worker or a psychologist, uh, and I'll move in the next person, and I can do three of these an hour, uh, and I'll make you know, roughly twice as much yeah. uh, by handing out prescriptions as I would have to talk to you and find out what your problem is. 
so I guess that the, is that's I, a big change. I assume the psychopharmacologists or whatever you call them uh, uh, would object to that uh, description of their role, but. Uh, well, some of them don't. And and in the New York Review of Books piece that I wrote on it, it was a two-part article, uh, I was reviewing some books on that. Right. And one of them was by a psychiatrist who said exactly what I told you. Uh, and he said, I, I do this. I see three patients an hour. I make more money doing this. He was quite honest about it. Um, I assume he also believes he's helping them, though. He does. He does. And he could be right, uh, but he's not as much as 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 many other psychiatrists would want to say. And he's also very skeptical that there's any difference between one of these drugs and the other. Uh, so, so a lot of psychiatrists will say, "Yes, this is the way it is." So let's talk about some alternatives uh, policies that might uh, change this. And I, I, you know, I assume there are people with. With different perspectives, many of them are, uh, of course, biased um, on the other side or, or in the pay of the people who um, who would be hurt by any possible changes. But what, what might you know? My my solution to this is, of course, is to make people pay with their own money. Uh, that mm-hmm. would help, I think, make the world a better place and get mm-hmm. rid of a lot of this. Make a lot of dead people. But well, I don't think so. I think it'd be a lot. I think the world would be a lot healthier. But I could obviously I could be wrong. But what would you? Where would you push us? Given these incentives that are, that exist uh, uh-huh. for for uh, and the potential for corruption, mm-hmm. what can we do to reduce it? Well, you won't agree uh, clearly. That's okay. Fire away. Um, but I th- I feel that in life and death matters, or matters that are very important to people's health, the government has a responsibility. Uh, that that's what a decent society does. And um, there are a few specific things I would argue for. Uh, One, I would stop PDUFA. Uh, I would get the FDA off of the industry's payroll. I think that it's a public agency. I I don't like the term uh, user fees because it seems to me that the drug companies are not the users. The public is the users. And I think uh, the FDA should be publicly supported uh, and supported well enough to do its job. Uh, I would also, and, and, and members of advisory committees should have no financial conflicts of interest. And by the way, uh, I totally agree with you on that, just like I also agree that the board of the Federal Reserve of New York should not have people from the New York investment banks on it. These are all okay, things good. that we've done. Well, these are all things that, we, that we've allowed, that, there's no we, things that have happened due to the incentive to take advantage of the system the way it's currently yes, constructed. Yes. Well, so far we agree. Yeah, uh, the other thing is I would I, I would advocate that placebo-controlled trials uh, not be accepted if this is a me-too drug, uh, if there are already drugs to treat the condition on, on the market, that um, a clinical trial should compare the new drug with whatever is being used. Sometimes you might want three arms particularly if you're not so certain that any of the drugs on the market mm-hmm. are very useful. Mm-hmm. You, you would, in the clinical trial, be uh, trying the new drug in a third of the population, uh, an old drug, uh, the, the best available drug in a third, and a sugar pill in the other third. Uh, but I would not permit these placebo-controlled trials to continue. This is important because if this happened, the ripple effects throughout the system would be enormous. Um, 
you wouldn't be able to uh, to, to make a fortune uh, simply by turning out Me Too drugs. Because in most cases, if you required that the new drug be compared with an old one, it wouldn't be any better. And so it would never get on the market. That would force, then, the uh, drug companies to do, to do what they say they're already doing, which is to work on innovative drugs instead of turning out uh, a whole host of Me Too drugs. So that would have ripple effects that, that may not be immediately apparent. Um, I, I would want to um, break the connection between the, the drug companies and the research itself. That is, I, I think they should sponsor, uh, they, they should pay for research on their own drugs, uh, but it should go through uh, an independent, uh, perhaps a, a, another institute in the NIH that would then uh, put out uh, uh, requests to, to do the trials from the academic medical centers so that the the uh, design of the studies uh, and so forth would not be left to the drug companies. Uh, the medical schools and uh, the physicians, uh, I would want them off the payroll of the drug companies. And I think this is something that the medical schools should enforce. And they used to enforce it. The problem is, is that they too are now on the payroll of the drug companies. That is, through Bayh-Dole and, and directly. Uh, there's been a study that shows that, uh, first of all, most medical schools are getting money directly from companies that are sponsoring research done by faculty within that school. Um, that um, the uh, chairman of most departments in medical schools uh, are getting personal funding and also getting departmental funding. All of that uh, should be stopped. And you asked me earlier um, where I thought the blame lay for this. And, and I think it's, in a sense, you could say, okay, the drug companies are you know, doing what drug companies do, uh, and maybe they go overboard. Certainly almost every big drug company has paid huge uh, fines uh, for fraudulent marketing. But you could say, okay, they're just trying to do what they do, which is to make a profit. Uh, the, the, the medical profession has no such excuse. They have no fiduciary responsibility to make a profit. Uh, they're tax exempt, uh, the medical schools, uh, and yet they're behaving like businesses. So I, I think that the, the doctors, I think they are more to blame and uh, they really ought to get their house in order. I just want to mention for those who might be confused listening and haven't heard the term before, Bayh-Dole is – the buy of Bayh-Dole is B-A-Y-H. It's referring to the senator who co-sponsored the legislation that Marsha and I have been talking about uh, a couple of times now. So that's the Bayh-Dole Act, which changed uh, the property rights and, and relationship between some academic research centers and yeah, yes. allowed um, universities to profit from their discoveries, right? And, mm -hmm. and, ha and then sell those to uh, to drug to companies. To royalties from, from drug companies, yeah. So the only, I just want to mention one thing, you know, when you say government has a responsibility, uh, 
It's a nice idea. The problem is who's responsible. Uh, when you say government has a responsibility, there's no such thing as a creation, a creature called the government. It's the 535 members of Congress, the president, the agencies, mm-hmm. and everybody mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. And so, like which you, we elect. which we elect, which is a very tenuous connection. I, I agree That's with you. It's better than nothing. You know, it is. Well, it is. The question is, there are better alternatives. So while I agree with you that this argument that the drug companies should be excused because that's their job is to make profits, that's a horrible argument. And you hear it from the right all the time in the financial sector. I well, didn't say being excused. I was making a comparison. Yeah, here. but but you hear that sometimes. You say, well, you know, that's their that's their job. And the problem well, is, not, you know, a couple of them have paid more than a billion dollars in in, um, in in both civil and criminal fines for fraudulent marketing. Yeah, that's a different I don't area. Excuse that no, of course all. not. No, no, of course not. I'm talking about this this nexus of of payment and in and uh, corruption implicit yeah. and explicit of, of the university system and the academic research and the clinical trials because it's in the interests of drug companies to do that because it lets them make money. And although that's certainly true, uh, that's not a good excuse. It it our system the political system and the regulations are what allow that them to take advantage of us. And there's no reason that those should be there. As you point out, we could certainly change the way we uh, constitute the bodies that assess research that for the FDA and all those things. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of policies that could change that, that could limit the damage. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we have talked about clinical research, uh, but there are other ways in, in which the drug companies influence not just research, but medical education, mm-hmm. medical practice. Um, they, they support probably most of the continuing medical education that doctors are required to, to receive in order right. to maintain their state licenses. This, this education comes out of the marketing budgets of drug companies, and they influence what doctors in practice actually learn. So it's not just research. Yeah, I agree. And, and insofar as um, the, and, and, and I figure, I mean, they, they don't tell you how much they spend on, on physician education and bribery. They don't tell you that. Uh, they, they keep the, the particulars of their marketing budgets very close to the chest. But my back-of-the-envelope calculations are that most of the marketing budget goes toward this, toward influencing what doctors believe, toward continuing medical education, either either explicitly uh, said to be that or what amounts to medical education. And one of the things I often ask doctors when I talk to them is, where do you think that money comes from? Yeah. It's tens of billions of dollars in just the top ten companies every year. It comes from year. you and me. Where <laughs> it comes from? What? It That's comes right. from you and me. It comes from the, exactly. the payments they charge us through the insurance companies, through Medicare. Exactly. Uh, you know. Exactly. And I would think doctors who make a good living, uh, relatively, ought to be ashamed of this. Oh, yeah. That all of their pizza and, and <laughs> trips uh, is is taxed on to someone else's drug cost. Yeah, I think it's they do better than pizza sometimes. A uh, lot better. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that that's a problem. I, and I think, as you point out, we didn't talk much about this, but uh, the drug companies have a lot of political power. I mean, I have read, I don't know if it's true, that that uh, Obamacare bought the approval, or at least the silence of the pharmaceutical companies by making sure that 
generic drugs were not an important part of that um, legislation. Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the, uh, it, it, it bought them in two ways. Uh, one was the uh, Medicare prescription drug benefit uh, prohibits the government from bargaining for prices. Uh, which, which means you would have a formulary, uh, and, and you, um, you would prefer generic drugs. Uh, the government does this at the VA, it does it in the Defense Department, but the uh, provision of the Medicare drug benefit said explicitly that they had to pay whatever the drug companies charged, that they could not bargain for lower prices. Uh, the VA gets probably the lowest prices of anyone in, in the country because they, 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 they threaten that if, if you don't give us low prices, then we will go to generics. Uh, but Medicare was not allowed to do that. And so there has been a strong uh, feeling that this should be stopped, uh, that, that Medicare should not pay whatever they charge. And when Obama was campaigning uh, in, for, in the, before the 2008 election, he said that that was something he would do. He would take that provision out. So he backed down from that, and he also backed down from making it legal to import drugs from Canada or Europe, uh, where the same brand name drugs can be bought for half price. Uh, there's a law against that now, uh, and Obama campaigned on getting rid of that law to create some competition. And he backed away from that. So those two things were the major um, bribes that he gave to the drug companies uh, to get them aboard on the ACA. Yeah, and it does point to the you know fundamental problem that we're talking about here, which is once you privilege certain groups, which is inevitably going to happen with something as large as government's role in the healthcare system, it's going to be very hard to keep the political power of, uh, that results from that from getting larger and then feeding back on itself uh, in unhealthy ways. And certainly, I believe what has happened to the financial sector and it's corrupted it, it's not a Republican problem or Democrat problem, Democratic problem. It's both parties are very friendly with the financial sector. And I suspect the same is true with the pharmaceuticals. I haven't looked at it as closely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it is both parties, uh, mainly the Republican, but both. Um, and, and for many years, the pharmaceutical industry had the largest lobby in Washington. I don't know who's the largest now. I haven't checked that lately, but a very large They're up lobby. there. Yeah, I'm sure they're still yeah, up they're there. they're up there. It does raise the question. So just to sort of highlight, I think, sort of what I would call the structural point you're making – a lot of people argue, I've argued in the past, uh, perhaps incorrectly, that if the whole world uh, was a single-payer system, you know, not even not the whole world per se, but if all mm-hmm. nations, if all individual nations were single-payer mm-hmm. and could use their negotiating leverage to, uh, to get cheaper prices for drugs, certainly the profits of the pharmace- pharmaceutical industry would go down. Mm-hmm. Your, your claim is that that would have a minimal impact on our health down the road because they are not the drivers of innovation. Yeah. A, a, a minimum negative impact. Yeah. I would say no uh, negative impact. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Uh, I'm sure the industry disputes it, but as you would point out, they're, they're biased, but I wonder who else does. I'll try to 
I'll try to find out. You want to say something cheerful before we end? Uh, we got a minute or two. It's been a pretty uh, depressing well, it's hour. It's a gorgeous day out. Yep. Uh, Thanksgiving is coming. Absolutely. Um, you and I seem to be uh, healthy and reasonably happy, so yeah. that sounds good to me. My guest today has been Marsha Angel. Marsha, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Well, you're quite welcome. I enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.